Report, Mr. Crusher. We finished our ski lesson, sir. And it kind of just happened. On the Enterprise, Mr. Crusher, nothing just happens. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Classic Trek Trudge, where we're back to uh, an Angel One this week, and we're joined by Byron Hussey. Hey. Hi. And this week, we also have a, a, a new special guest from the blog um, Warp Speed to Nonsense, uh, which uh, reviews... It's a massive undertaking, reviewing... It, every Star Trek production uh, and Sarah is the the uh, owner of said blog welcome Sarah thank you <laughs> um, so uh, uh, Sarah's a little bit ahead of us I think um, you're up to season three or something I am I'm I'm uh, reviewing like I think it's like season three episode four or five this week yeah which is probably about when it gets really good. It is. It's starting to get a little better. A couple of dogs every now and again, but that's Star Trek for you. <laughs> right. And of course, um, <laughs> this one this week is, is well, maybe it's it's not a total dog, but um, it's definitely a season one episode. Yeah. Yeah. The, the best that you can say about season one episodes is that sometimes they don't suck. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This episode in particular was described by uh, one of the showrunners, Maurice Hurley, as terrible, just terrible. <laughs> so yeah, um, he was one of the, Hurley was one of the guys that was um, brought in by Gene Roddenberry's lawyer. So I mean, maybe you don't have to take his opinion that seriously if that's his that's his pedigree. He he wasn't a sci-fi guy. Why was um. Why was he brought in by a lawyer? Oh, this is like a divorce settlement. Oh, are you not familiar with that? <laughs> yeah, what you want to do? The legend of Leonard Maislish. Yes, um, uh, the vicious blood-sucking lawyer who Gene employed to make sure that he wasn't uh, cast to the wayside on the next generation, like he was during the production of the motion picture. Right. Uh, yeah, he was so despised that various. Um, crew members considered murdering him, <laughs> uh, like pushing him out the window. And uh, he used to get caught, uh, like going through people's stuff. Um, wow. Yeah, and he was always doing things that were like against the the rules of the Writers Guild and all the, all the various, you know, production guilds. And well, uh, a lot of people quit. Yeah. A lot the, of people. The whole season one staff quit, and it's kind of speculated that it's pretty much Maislish's fault that the first few seasons kind of suck uh, mm-hmm. just because of all his creative interference and how it stifled uh, the the writing staff well to be fair this episode wasn't great no, no. yeah so the the premise of this episode is where where it's one of those switch em ups where oh what if this oppressed group was actually the the oppressor and and this is on the other side. Uh, so mm-hmm. women are the sexist, chauvinist ones. 
uh, on the Planet Angel one. Yeah. Uh, um, it kind of reminded me, are either of you familiar with the little known John Travolta film, White Man's Burden? No. Mm-mm. That's a, that's a kind of similar deal. That's where, um, black people are the slave owners and white people are really oppressed. Is it science fiction? Like it's a speculative fiction, you know, like, like okay. Twilight Zone type deal. It's, it's just kind that of... That sounds like it could be really good or it could go really wrong. Um, I think the the consensus is is that the film is probably not worth your time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I just draw the analogy because like uh, the oppressed group just so happens to be white men in both of these stories, so it's almost as though yeah. like, oh, how can we you know relate to someone who's being oppressed if they're not you know white and male mm-hmm. and heterosexual as well. Or a little straight white cis boy? Yeah. John Travolta. <laughs> yeah. He's really, yeah, heterosexual. Super oppressed? And oppressed. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he is He is heterosexual, right? I mean. Yeah, extre- yeah. Uh, there, are, there are women who can attest to this. Yes, like his wife, Kelly mm-hmm. Preston. Kelly Preston. Mother of his children. Mm-hmm. So let's may, uh, may they rest in peace. Oh well, I think I think most of them are still around. It's just the one. But uh, mm, this uh, is yeah. too dark a topic. Let's pivot. Pivot. <laughs> so the, uh, we we begin with the Enterprise. Um, they've scanned the the wreck of a freighter called the Odin, and they figure, well, this planet called Angel One is is within. Uh, range of its escape pods, so let's um, check it out to see if... if it sounded like you just said Asia 1. Yeah, the Asia 1, where Asian people are the... Uh, so, um, Data says that the... I think it's Data. Um, says that the, yep. it's one of those planets that, oh, it's um, similar to mid-20th century Earth, Captain. Like, very, very convenient that um, you can just pinpoint it like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the difference is the bosses on this planet are girls. Whoa. Yeah, what? crazy. Um, Pump and... the brakes. Yeah. Yeah, but also not so crazy because, as Troy points out, Beta Z is like that. Right. Right. So, you know, so it's not like we've never encountered this before. It's just that we haven't really gone to Beta Z. Yeah. yeah I don't think and we've never will. Waxana yet, have we? Or have we? Waxwana uh, shows up in uh, Haven. Oh, yeah, we did. Yeah, we, we met. So we have Waxana. already encountered her by this point. Right. Um, and the, the boss lady of the planet uh, picks up the phone, which uh, like, is a little unusual. Like, I, I, I do wonder if the, like, the president would, would pick up the phone if you called Earth. Uh, yeah, maybe that's Earth. just compressed for story purposes. The Ben Ki Moon. Yeah, this is the the Ban Ki Moon of Angel One, except she's she's not quite got his uh, diplomatic acumen because she she kind of wants to brush them off and and say that uh, uh, their their diplomatic courtesy call is is neither expected nor required, and they only reluctantly accept uh, them visiting. Mm-hmm. 
supposed to be like mid 20th century Earth, except for that somehow they've developed uh, like a planet wide monoculture. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, they, maybe they wear different hats on different continents. <laughs> Who knows? And we hate those people with the other hats. That's, yeah. Well, they suck. We um, could somehow mix in like a, like, and also a, uh, like a race um, um, struggle metaphor mixed in with this awkward gender struggle metaphor. Well, kind of yeah, stir all, it all up. It's all white people on this planet. Not a single person yeah. of color to be seen anywhere. Oh, it's a, it's a paradise. <laughs> fuck fuck that. That's, that's really, fuck you. Yeah, that's really sad, though, because Star Trek generally goes out of its way to include people of color. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you see a planet, you know, like being a white person, I'm not going to, you know, notice it quite as often as a POC. But I feel like lately, just because it's, it's been coming up so much, I am paying more attention to things when I'm like, why is this cast all white? Why was that Mm -hmm. necessary? Mm -hmm. I mean, is it that POCs just didn't evolve in the same way on this particular planet? Or yeah. were they just not paying attention to all of the people that they hired? I mean, like, there's all those in-universe arguments, but, like, I, that in the back of our minds, we know that the, the real-world reason is just, you know, s- structural inequality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> um, the, now, something that I uh, read on Memory Alpha about this one is that it's apparently the first uh, instance where they um, kind of go into the modern version of the Prime Directive, which doesn't seem quite right to me, because I thought it came up in the Injustice when Wesley was on the uh, the sex planet. But mm-hmm. um, they say that this is the one where, where Roddenberry uh, formulated the modern Prime Directive of total non-interference with um, pre-warp alien cultures, which is funny, because they seem to do quite a bit of interfering and, and not really make much of a fuss about it. <laughs> Are you talking about like the the hanky panky? Well just just about everything that they do. Like they're they're getting involved in this, you know, this little conflict on, on this planet and they just in every interaction yeah. there's all manner of, you know, judgments and and just stuff that like it seems like Catherine Janeway agonizes over whether or not she can like say hello to someone on the wrong planet but and yet they're mm-hmm. you know they're going around fermenting sexual revolutions on this planet yeah well it's not it's not okay for women to be in charge anywhere according right. to starfleet it helps you um helps you empathize by by um uh, not wanting the woman to be in charge yeah, they made an exception in this case. Right. It's, it's that dire. Um, so the the head woman, Beata, is played by an actress called Karen Montgomery, who I saw in her list of credits was also in the film Amazon Women on the Moon. Whoa. Which kind of seems to be a mm-hmm. maybe a thematic echo. Yeah. She You think that's why she was cast? Like I just remembered seeing her in that. Well, maybe. I think F. Murray Abraham was in that movie as well. And uh, mm. he, he later 
had a Star Trek role as well. Yeah, I've never seen it, so I've never seen it either. Um, she, uh, she, she's uh, unfortunately has died. The actress. Oh, oh. I'm sorry to. Oh no. Sorry to share that. Oh yeah, F. Murray Abraham was in. um, What? Insurrection. Insurrection. Yeah. Very good performance in a lackluster movie. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Now. The, the B-plot in this one is about everyone getting sick on the Enterprise, and the instigation of that seems to be Wesley going on a field trip on the holodeck to the Alps. And right. um, he and his friend, who has no lines, and is just set dressing, which uh, <laughs> I, I think um, Sarah noticed that uh, when she read this one as well. <laughs> Um, well, he was, he was or in the original script, he was supposed to have several friends, and none of these friends had lines. They were all set dressing. Wow. Hmm. Um, What's I, the point? Oh, I'll tell you what the point is. It's, um, it's, a, it's an echo of how men are just eye candy on Angel One. <laughs> Wesley's male friends are just eye candy. Um, and it's funny, they're, they're wearing these, like, baked potato tinfoil ski suits, um, and I distinctly recall that the first time that I watched this one with my then girlfriend, we both um, got like a really homoerotic vibe from it, and I'm not quite sure why now. But it just it just seemed like oh they they're gonna go have fun in their gay ski suits. <laughs> Am I alone in getting that? No, but there are a lot of things that they put Wesley in that are. Kind of homoerotic. Yeah. Like, yeah. It, like his, his season one uniform that had the the stripes around the shoulders. Mm-hmm. Like for the longest time, I was like, "Is that a gay pride thing?" Like it took me forever to figure out that those were supposed to be, you know, indicative of the three branches of Starfleet. Right. You know, oh. And science medical. It took me forever to figure that out. I was like, yeah. is that a rainbow? Is that a gay yeah. pride thing? It doesn't look like a uniform at all, does it? It just looks like he's a kid wearing a sweater. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. right? And he has so many terrible sweaters. <laughs> like, the why we know that he's actually, that that's actually a uniform is because he wears it day to day on the bridge. Right. As opposed to, like, that terrible orange thing that he was wearing in where no one has gone before. Oh, right, yeah. Looks like he got up and put on a bedspread. <laughs> great great uh, wardrobe. Uh, yeah, like, there there have been some great things that they've put him in for this show, but it's really overshadowed by the myriad of awful things that they've mm-hmm. put him in. Uh, so, that yeah, that's the, the take on the Wesley wardrobe for the episode. Um, now, we get some establishing shots uh, of Angel One, and this is probably its its uh, influence on uh, Trek as a whole. It, it, this matte painting that keeps popping up um, everywhere as the establishing shot on many planets, and it's uh, like a bunch of buildings. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yes, yeah. matte paintings are amazing. Yeah. It's a little, it's like a little odd that every planet seems to have 
this city that looks pretty much the same. Yeah. I, I would They're... imagine that map painters are probably they probably come at a price. Yeah, that mm-hmm. I would I would think so. Um, now I seem to recall when I watched um, Nemesis that uh, the they made a big CG model of Romulus, like a city, um, on that mm-hmm. one, and I felt like maybe they were kind of paying homage to the uh, reused map painting with that model, but I'm not sure about that. I'd probably have to watch it again. They probably referenced it, like, these are the cities that we had. Like, if you were going to make a Romulus, what would you do? Where'd you start? You'd be like, well, what what do the Star Trek cities look like? Right. And they'd be like, well, we've got all these map paintings over here. Check it out. And they'd lead you into the dusty Star Trek prop attic. Yeah, I wonder who's got the map. Pile of map paintings. It has to be somewhere, doesn't it? Oh, they're... mm, Could just be... Probably Studio Archive. Mm. Oh, yeah. The Garbage. Or Paramount. The name of that woman that um, that runs the uh, June something. Well, um, anyway, I... Uh, among the list of episodes that uses them is Samaritan Snare, The Mind's Eye, and even various episodes of Deep Space Nine and Voyager. So it's a it's a got great longevity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think at this point in the episode we meet the the Angel One matriarchs in their like council chamber, which I think has like cherry blossoms outside or something, um, and uh, it's it's awfully coincidental. They they all seem to have very 1980s American beauty standards, despite mm-hmm. being in a culture with opposite gender roles. Well, I mean, you know, hot is hot. It's just there's no there's no subjectivity to it. It's, right. it's an objective it's scale, objective. universal scale. It's like the periodic That's table right. of hot hotness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I mean? The thing that you can notice with the wardrobe is that the women wear big shoulder pads to make them bigger and the men wear mm-hmm. this like uh, close fitting loose draped kind of stuff to make them look smaller mm-hmm. and also to I... reveal their nipples mm. I, I really I have to give a lot of credit to the costume designers on this particular episode mm-hmm. I thought that the the costumes that they put on the, for lack of a better word, council, mm-hmm. I thought that those were really fantastic. You know, not only with the with the wide sort of winged shoulders, but they were high waisted, mm-hmm. making them look taller. Because if you notice, they're not any taller than the Enterprise crew members. I think no. Riker mm-hmm. is actually taller than Bayada. Yeah. So they they hired regular sized women, but they hired much shorter men. Yes. But mm-hmm. those costumes make them look like a million feet tall. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I wasn't sure what the difference was between the different branches because some of those women are wearing blue and some of those women are wearing yeah. red. But Beata is wearing purple. Right. Um, I thought and I, maybe it was a political party thing. Yeah, it's it's possible. Like That part is never really explained, but I like the fact that they that they sort of differentiated between them and then gave Bayada that, that combination color um, mm-hmm. to sort of signify that she's in charge. 
it's a constitutional oligarchy, and it's probably that they all hold roughly the same amount of power, but Bayada was elected to be their spokesperson. Uh-huh. And so I, I like the fact that they sort of designated her with this slightly different color. Yeah. That's Visual including those other ones. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's very, it makes a really cool kind of a, um, a dichotomy between, you know, these, these very tall sort of, they remind me of, um, Carrie Adams, the, uh, the pillar women of, is it Greece or Rome? Okay. Right, they're they're very sort of tall and statuesque, and sort of um, you know they want people to think like they're holding up society. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but then you've you've got all of these men who are are smaller, and they're wearing these sort of drapey, non-architectural, sort of shiny, pastel-y. Mm-hmm. Um, just you know, they're. I don't want to use a term. Masculine and feminine, but well, you know, in the 1980s, that's exactly how you would have categorized that: masculine yeah. and feminine. There is a bit of that happening. There is. Um, and uh, I, I guess we should note at this point that um, uh, Beata's sidekick Trent um, uh, kind of features prominently in the episode. I think his actor is still alive, Leonard Crowfoot. Uh, and he's had another uh, Star Trek role, which uh, you, you probably wouldn't guess this, but he plays the genderless uh, Lal, uh, mm-hmm. Data's offspring, in the yeah. bit where she doesn't have uh, like any, she hasn't picked her species or anything yet. Mm-hmm. Same guy. Yeah, that genderless guy kind of reminds me of um, the old school automatons from like the, yeah. the 30s and the 40s, kind of very metropolis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't you wouldn't know what gender the person was underneath it. Mm-hmm. But that Leonard Crawford is a short guy. Yeah, I so think he's he worked a real dancer. well for that. That would not surprise me. Mm. Like you take a look at that guy underneath that goofy drapey costume that they put him in and he looks like he's pretty fit. Um, ah, yeah, so in B-plot land, we're um, learning that the Romulans are, are at some outpost or something, and apparently this is the first mention of Romulans in The Next Generation. They don't matter yeah. in this episode, they're just like a word. Mm-hmm. Um, in in the uh, initial, original script, it was going to be Ferengi. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Which... I mean, I don't know why they changed it, really. Were they already starting to get, like, the bad feedback for the yeah, Ferengi that, at this that point? Might be it. Probably. Focus away from <laughs> the, the disastrous, annoying little guys with whips. <laughs> um, and so we learn this because Picard is discussing the situation with, I think, Worf or something. And or... they walk down a corridor and get hit by a snowball from... Uh, Wesley and his his wordless friend, um, and Picard's still apparently got a stick up his butt at this point in the show because he just doesn't have a sense of humor about it at all. And he says to Wesley, "I think the line is um, on the Enterprise, Mister Crusher. Things don't just happen. 
even though <laughs> that's exactly what happens every week <laughs> on the Enterprise. Things just happen. Things just happen. I, I think at this point, it's sort of like they have established that you can't have matter outside the holodeck. Yeah. But you can. Yeah. They keep mm-hmm. going back and forth about what, because they keep doing that. They'll pass something outside of the holodeck, and how is he able to hit them with a snowball? He should not have been able to do that. Um, my guess would be that snow and ice is one of the things that they make out of real matter um, in the holodeck. So it's it's a real but snowball. Don't, I mean, remember when, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the, uh, Guy from the Big Goodbye stepped so outside. Uh, yeah, he. Um, <laughs> it took him a second to disappear. Like uh, yeah. he was standing in the hallway for a good like thirty seconds before he yeah. dematerialized. Right, but the point is, you can see the water on Picard's shirt for the rest of the scene in this one. Right. Yeah, that's fucked up. I I think they went ahead and did that for physical comedy. Yeah. And be damned. Yeah. I I also disagree, by the way, the the sentiment, James, that like Picard should have had a sense of humor about this. Like what what the hell is he doing? You're like you don't hit the captain of the ship with the snowball. Right, but keep the door like, closed. It's just a it's just a snowball, man. Keep like, the door no, it's the ultimate disrespect. This is not a playground. It's a starship. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't mean to. I would have I would have jettisoned Wesley into space. Oh, well, you wouldn't be alone there, I imagine. <laughs> oh, I I really like Wesley, but man, if somebody's going to hit me with some frozen water, that person is getting yeah, punched. Right. I'm, yep. I'm, I'm on the record as being a Wesley fan as well. This is a no Wesley bash zone, this podcast. Good. It's neither here nor there. It has nothing to do with Wesley. It's just behavior is inexcusable. Right. Why do you get the door open? You could have hit anybody. You could have killed yeah. someone. Yeah, you could, you could have hit a, a Romulan <laughs> or something. Yeah. Um, but that's that's probably enough B-plot talk. Back in A-plot, um, we're learning... Wait. That... Yeah? Is the B-plot the, uh, the disease or the yeah. Romulan crisis? It, well, it's the same it's thing. both. It's I feel both. like those are different plots, though. Uh, okay, how so do they this, the B plot has two elements. Like, yes. Like how the A plot has sexist women and fugitive anarchists. Mm-hmm. That makes sense, I guess. Uh, and we we in fact learned that there were survivors from the the escape pods from the Odin, and the men are now fugitives on Angel One because they won't kowtow the chauvinist line. They're sinning against the natural order. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, and then we're back to B plot. Um, people start getting sick on the Enterprise. Wesley's sick, and uh, Doctor Crusher tries to isolate the virus, but it's hard. You know, it's hard. Um, and then uh, Riker is uh, preparing to meet with Beata, and for like script reasons he wears um the 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 drapey open chested uh garb of the the local mm-hmm. men and the women find this very amusing 
It's um, so awful. Yeah. <laughs> so awful. I kind of... And I, um, yeah? Well, I, I, I tried to... I tried to figure out what it was that was so god-awful about this that just made me sort of cringe and laugh. Like, I had the exact same reaction to it that that Troy and Yard did, the, the, mm. the overwhelming urge to laugh, because what the hell is he wearing? Right. Um, and I, I couldn't figure out what it was specifically. I'm like, is this, is this emasculating? And I kind of wanted to look up maybe the psychology. By the way, never Google emasculating clothing. It's absolutely <laughs> the worst. You, you just get this like weird slew of guys complaining about things that are emasculating, women talking about how they proudly emasculated a guy, and I'm like, I'm just not, I'm not I cannot do this. Hmm. I, I'm like, all right, I'm just going to leave it at he's dressed ridiculously. Hmm. Um, I, I have a take on this that I could mansplain to the both of you, if you, if, if you like. Um, okay. I think that um, the, the women laughing at uh, men for dressing in a way that it, like, it expresses sexuality is, um, that's, a, that's a form of, of like the kind of patriarchal sexism that we have in, you know, standard earth where, where men mm -hmm. are the ones in the patriarchy. Um, because it's women are stigmatized when they, when they dress sexy and when men do it, it's, it's funny. You know, it's, oh, it's mm -hmm. disgusting if a woman dresses that way, but if a man dresses that way, it's funny. So I, I feel like it's the same impulse uh, here. Dressing to be eye candy. Right. And I, I, I actually relate to this um, uh, as a homosexual because sometimes I, I, I feel compelled to dress in a manner that heterosexual men don't uh, normally dress and the reaction it, it is kind of like, well, if a woman was dressing that way, you'd judge her one way, but if a man's dressing that way, it's something different. Double standard. Mm -hmm. A double standard between being gay and straight. Right. Because straight men don't quite have that same freedom to, no. to yeah. dress. No? You don't yeah? have the you don't have the latitude to express yourself in the same way. And if you do, then yeah. you're, you're breaking gender roles and stigmatized in various ways. So, yeah. you know, great job Star Trek um, crew for being so progressive in 23rd century. You're expressing 20th century sexist attitudes. How does the, um, like the cod piece of the outfit work? Is it part of the top? It's the same material as the top. Yeah, it's, I think it's that they pulled the top down in front and then they used the laces that go up the legs to mm -hmm. create that cod piece, but it very specifically puts that area on show. Mm -hmm. It's like a female wearing a low-cut top, which yeah. is kind of ridiculous because that the blouse thing that they put the men in, as you mentioned you can see at least one or both of their nipples at all points in time. Mm -hmm. It's kind of ridiculous how on show, 
how how on stage they are at all points in time while wearing this outfit. It's just like you know, Riker was saying that oh well, it's a diplomatic thing, and when I go to diplomatic things, I like to wear a cultural costume, you know. And in this one place, I wore feathers, and in this other place, I wore furs, and I'm like. Yeah, but here you're eye candy. You're not dressing yeah. to their their diplomatic standards. You're dressing to this is how guys on this planet dress, and it's specifically to be eye candy for the women. So yeah. it's but I mean, I, I guess it's like, problematic from a, from a diplomatic point of view. Like uh, female Western politicians will often wear headscarves when they're in Egypt or Saudi Arabia or whatever, but they don't wear bikinis when they're in Brazil. Right. No. But they would if bikinis were like the standard outfit, wouldn't they? For for sure. Yep. Maybe. 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 That that's an awful lot of skin there. I I yeah. feel like um with that sort of a thing, you dress to the most conservative. So if you're if the US is more conservative than the way that Brazil would dress, then you dress for U.S. If mm-hmm. you go to um, a Middle Eastern country where you have to have your head covered, mm-hmm. that's more conservative. So you would dress to that more conservative. You would you would basically um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you make that your base. Right. What if you're on a delegation to Ferengana though? Because they, they well, would you get... wouldn't be. I guess not. You wouldn't be. Because they might... would be freaked out by the fact that they sent a female instead. Or you could go like... Um... She used to be Moogie, man. You could be Moogie and just say, fuck it, I'm going to dress how I want. Right. Yeah, just because mm-hmm. women are on camera now, so we have to actually put them in something <laughs> that we can put on television. I love Mookie. Oh, she's she's wonderful, isn't she? She's delightful. I I I put Mookie in the same category of Loxana. Oh, what's I that category? So that category is fabulous badass women who don't give a fuck. Uh huh. Right. Yeah. <coughs> because <coughs> she doesn't play by anybody else's and neither does Mookie. They they both play by their own rules. They both right. march their own summer. Yeah, she's a, she's a real role model. Additionally, in the fact that she mm-hmm. owns property. Mhm. She she forced them to change the rules. Speaking of the patriarchy. <coughs> nice. Yeah. Right. Deep Space Nine probably better on the on the feminism front than season one of the Next Generation. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So. So isn't it kind of strange though that they, I mean they're. The, the reaction to Riker's outfit is our reaction. We agree with the, the chuckles and stuff. But shouldn't they be used to this stuff? Like, I mean, is it that oh, unusual? Yeah. Um, they, they should be, really. They should be a little more grown up, I think. And, like, and it, isn't there probably a class at, like, um, Starfleet Academy about, like, cultural, un, you know, sort of understanding cultural differences and not laughing at them? Where they get like electrocuted. Yeah, they they all sit in the in the electric electric chairs. They show <laughs> pictures of like 
silly outfit that different aliens wear. And then if they laugh, they get electrocuted. That's the class. That sounds, yeah, that sounds really emasculating. No, it's not emasculating. You know, think they start an academy and employs electric chair? Like, <laughs> I, I think they would because like it's really important collar. stuff. Yeah, it's like this is like Prime Directive 101. You don't laugh at other cultures' outfits. Right. Go. Just a heads up, everybody has to sign a waiver going into PD class because we're going to be using operant conditioning techniques. Yeah. <laughs> no, no waiver necessary because it's like a, like a, isn't it like a totalitarian, like a benevolent totalitarian society? Right. Like, yeah. It's the PC like, police I mean, are in charge. Yeah. This is the future that liberals want. It is. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. Um, and uh, just one more note on the sexy costumes. I've detected a little bit of irony in that Riker comes out wearing the sexy costume and the and the girls are, are giggling and all. And it's like, how ridiculous that he has to wear this sexy thing. But Troy herself is wearing, in this very scene, the sexist low-cut uniform that no one else wears. Mm-hmm. Because she's the designated oh, ship's eye candy. Because Jean yeah. Rodri has a hard-on for alien women. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh, her costumes in the first season are just <laughs> god-awful. They're just god-awful. I, To be perfectly honest, the costume that I liked her in best was after she was forced to put on her uniform. Because she looks damn good in that uniform. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just, just my own little personal take on that. But... Oh, that green gray thing that they put her in and that yeah. they, they continually you know then they switch it up and they put her in a sort of a maroon burgundy one um yeah. also different but still you know and then they they have a dress for her but the dress has a, a an asymmetrical neckline of it that's you know like the rest of the dress is kind of modest but there you can see a lot of her decolletage basically yeah and just she, is it is it better or worse no than her black Yeah, is it better or worse than the scant that she wears in the first episode? I don't know. I guess that would depend on the framing of the shot because she just looks like anyone else if it's framed above the waist. But you know, if it's if it's framed so you could see the miniskirt, then yeah, that's true. That's true. They did put Yar in one of those too at some point in right. time. Yeah, scant. There's also there's also like very quickly. I think. There's also like a random extra male guy in uh, right. miniskirt. That would have been that would have been great. I would have been for more of that, but it's yeah. It it was yeah, perhaps guy. ahead of its time. It was like it was it was an answer to the the um, miniskirts that they had the females wear on TOS. They're like, oh, let's let's do let's do a guy version of that, but we'll make it unisex, and so then they have a choice in uniforms. Mm-hmm. And it seems like I saw more males wearing the scant than I saw female. Maybe it's just because I was looking for the males specifically in scant. Like I would get excited, like, oh, scant sighting. <laughs> you know, um, they actually they make scants now. You can purchase them if yeah. you have two hundred and fifty dollars. And you wear female sizes because they do not make male scans. Oh, that's unacceptable. Right. Totally contrary to the vision. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I want to see some male scans. Y'all need to get on that merchandise. 
And I yep. agree. Calling out that uh, those Star Trek cosplay uh, tailors, you need to you need to get with the program, folks. It's the 24th century, and sexism doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Oh, I take my picture with every dude in a scant at Comic Con. Everyone. Fantastic. I I totally. I have I have so much respect for people who go into a cosplay and they do it with full confidence. Somebody who totally Maybe. commits. Somebody who makes a rand wig. Yes. Wow, that would that would be labor intensive. Takes a lot of Maybe. struts to hold up that hair. I think. I Maybe I know. Could be the next. Awesome. Uh... It's ridiculous the amount of work that goes into it, and they appear to be extraordinarily heavy. But props to you if you're wearing that all day at Comic Con. Right. Um, weren't uh, onesies? Weren't onesies? Getting popular for a while for guys, maybe this could be the next, the next trend. I'd I'd much rather see boys and scants than onesies. Yeah, I feel like I haven't heard that much about the onesie thing, so I think it I think it already died down. Yeah, that was like a few years ago, I think. No, I don't think so. I think it was this year. Oh right, twenty seventeen, year of our Lord. Yeah, yeah, dead wrong, James. <laughs> mm. Um. So slam dunk um, on you. Uh, we want to we want to get back to a plot zone. Okay. Happening in a plot is we meet the um, the head survivor of the Odin, who looks like MacGyver. He does. Mm. Um, and I didn't get the actor name. I don't think, but he's not um, Richard Dean Anderson. No. Uh, the character's name is Ramsey. Uh, and it turns out that all the guys from the Odin have taken wives uh, on the planet, and they're they're settled here now, and they don't want to leave. And just just a note: if it's the twenty fourth century and there's no more sexism, how come the crew of the Odin were all male? Good question. Just saying. Just saying. Well, it's the Odin. The survivors of the crew right, were all it's male. Coincidence. They, well, it's not the Athena, it's the Odin. <laughs> Just like it's, coincidentally, they're all white people. Mm-hmm. Um, that, oh, that would have added an, an interesting twist to the plot if there were one or two females peppered in there. Right, yeah, yeah. because... How, how would they have dealt with that, you know, would, would they have been willing to go along with it? Mm. You know, like, Initially coming onto the planet, like, wow, that's kind of bullshit. You know, how come you treat your males differently here? Would they have decided after a while that they were okay with it because they benefited? Or would they have stood with Ramsey and the others and said, no, this is bullshit? It would have had more weight and impact for sure. And yeah. Had, had I been on the writing team, then that's, <laughs> I would have written some awful, terrible episodes, and Leonard Mazelish would have kicked me out. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, oh, uh, we're getting the obligatory Riker seduction scene at this point. Oh, um, Lord. He, he's he's uh, being seduced, I guess, by Beato, who's making all sorts of comments on his appearance. Uh, and they're, it seems like they're about to get nasty, and then uh, Trent comes into the room and interrupts because he has a oh a meditation crystal 
for them, and he seems kind of uh, disappointed that they don't want him to join in. Yeah, I got that vibe too. Yeah. I, I do wonder what exactly they meant by that. I wonder if maybe that was Brottenbury, one of his kind of weird sexual things. That the... He, he was definitely like that... There was a whole thing on Memory Alpha about that. Yeah. About him wanting to, you know, like the writers, the, uh, uh, Patrick Berry was the head writer on this episode. Mm-hmm. And um, he was talking about how he wanted to make the, the episode like Apartheid, which was definitely a big thing back in 1988 that was still going on. It was still several more years before... Um, apartheid ended in South Africa mm. and Gene Roddenberry was like no let's make it sexy um, but then he went on this weird rant like he started out saying like mm. let's make it so that the women rule really fairly and um, you know it's not super unjust and we want to make sure that we don't get angry letters from angry feminists blah 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 but then he goes on this weird rant talking about how women are untrustworthy and they're liars and they're vicious and everybody at the table is like talking about Gene and then just like that it turns off and and there's always like he always wants to add this weird sexual shit mm. that's not always appropriate not always yeah always. yeah it's like and, like Riker's at work here like it's, it's why, why is he why is he allowing himself to be seduced. It's very unprofessional. It is. And that's, I, I'm very curious as to know whether or not people think that he was doing this to cement diplomatic relationships with her, or if he was just doing it because he was strictly interested in her on a personal level. Yeah. And like, you could make the argument, well, I guess in the future, maybe they're just more like laid back, but it doesn't really show through anywhere else. <laughs> like, like you'd think they'd just be like constantly having innuendo and and having like trysts and stuff, but it's, it's not the case. It seems to be that people are are pretty straightforward, conservative, uh, monogamous in all yeah. of their because, situations. Yeah, they rein it in. Yeah, you know, um, like it's 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 obvious that that Troy and Riker were together previously, are not together now. They're just friends. They're not involved with one another. Um, but it's interesting that that came from um, from Decker and Ilya. Yeah. From from the first movie, like they're based off of Decker and Ilya because Decker and Ilya were supposed to. I think they were supposed to be in in Star Trek Phase Two. Yeah. That that aborted second, well, technically third show. And, and instead, when they wrote Next Gen, they wrote them as Troy and Riker. But Ilya came from a species where you just have sex with everyone. You have sex with friends. You go over did she have hang a vow out with of celibacy? She did. She had to take a vow of celibacy because in the Federation, they d- they're not down with that. Oh. They're not down mm-hmm. with everybody. And so she had to have a vow of celibacy on file with the ship saying that she wasn't going to bone everybody. And specifically not Captain Kirk. 
because she tells him. <laughs> Um, I, I guess I'd just like to go on record at this point to say I hate the motion picture. <laughs> Not everybody hates the motion picture. That's the that's the one that like I I don't get it when people say oh it's really like sure there's good bits in it but it's not it's not a good movie but anyway we don't talk about the odd number of Star Trek movies. Oh, I actually like the fifth one. I'm maybe the only one. <laughs> I, are you? Serious? Yeah, I, I love it. I love they, they oh, meet God. God. Like, come on, that's great. Oh. Beyond Discovered Country? No, that's the sixth one. That no, one that's genuinely is good. Oh. Which is the fifth one? The fifth Final one French is the here. one where William Shatner climbs El Capitan. Yeah, but what's the title? I forget. Oh, uh, The Final Frontier. Final Frontier. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah, I've seen you it. You never told me you had a brother? You never asked, sir. <laughs> <laughs> That's good writing. That's great. Yeah. Uh, and they're, they're doing the same one for Discovery. Mm-hmm. You never told me you had an, ado- an adopted half sister. Um. Gosh, what's it was a secret plot? Yeah, it was a secret. She was a secret um, sister, and we'll find out what she was up to very soon, and presumably mm-hmm. we'll podcast about it. Um, God willing. going on um oh uh while they're while they're boning um the rest of the away team is doing real work and um data says this line that private citizens are not bound by the prime directive which seems insane to me because like just any old private actor could go and like influence a, a civilization in ways that could be just as damaging as anything that you know Starship Enterprise could do. That was well, there was actually a really interesting conversation in the comment section of my blog last week, um, where the commenters just got into a conversation on their own. Um, but it was pointed out that that Starfleet, the Federation, probably has you know like a list of do not contact planets. But um, like, where where do you draw the line? Yeah. On the PD, what if what if you go to a planet and just without thinking about it, you're like, hey, I have a bag of Doritos. Do you guys want to try these Doritos? And then like two years later, you visit that planet again, and Doritos. Doritos have become this major thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you have inadvertently screwed with their culture you hadn't intended to but that was the outcome of that like are you going to get the snack down from the federation because you shared a snack food like where do you draw that line it's uh the the, the penalty is death i believe <laughs> sorry well, you know like yeah the 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 last episode that i did is um season three who watches the watchers oh great and one. that's a great one isn't it fabulous? But yeah. the, these anthropologists—they were also talking about how they were—they were not part of Starfleet, but they were also bound by the Prime Directive. Mm. Um, because this anthropologist was like, "Fine, break the PD. I don't give a shit. I've got a person locked down on the planet." And Picard is like, "These people are uncontactable. We're not allowed to talk to them. We could screw with their culture inadvertently." And this guy's like, "I don't care. Get them out." And Picard points out, you know, we are all 
bound by this. We have to play by the same rules. And so, yeah, like how how far out does that extend? If private citizens aren't bound by it, Mm. then how do they, you know, like you can say, there's a moratorium on going to this planet. Mm. They are, you know, you can't interfere with them, whatever. But Harry Mudd did that shit all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, Bring up discovery. We're getting uh, Harry Mudd again. I wonder on oh yeah that'll be fun. Um, I wonder if on this here Earth that we live on, if there are rules regarding like the tribes in the Amazon that don't have much contact. I, I think there know. would be legislation in Brazil regarding what you can can and can't do with these people. Maybe. Like, I watched this documentary where uh, these ornithologists were out in the Amazon, mm-hmm. and they were looking at this bird that is poisonous. It's a poisonous bird. That's And fucked. they couldn't... Right? They couldn't figure out... They couldn't figure out how this bird had become poisonous, because they had figured out that there wasn't anything that the bird was producing itself. Mm-hmm. And they finally figured out um, something... Right. And so they leave and they go back and they do research in the U.S. and they think about it some more. They come back to the Amazon several years later and a tribe that they had talked to said, we figured it out. It's these certain beetles that the bird eats and then the poison passes from the beetle into the bird. Doesn't harm the bird, but makes the bird poisonous. Wow. And they they take them to their village to show them the beetle. They have a box with fucking pins and labels, huh. like 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 insect collector level. Oh, <laughs> right! Like research. they've kind of absorbed the methodology. Yes, and they had taken on this methodology, and they were super surprised that you know, gosh, these people living way out in the Amazon basin are doing this. That's really funny. There's no possible way that they could have gotten it from any other place except for us. And I immediately thought, that's some PD shit right there. (laughs) (laughs) You guys just break the prime directive because you can just, you know, there isn't that same sort of an anthropology thing like they have in the 24th century where you can hide behind a duck blind and watch somebody. Mm -hmm. You know, they're actually going out and they're living with these tribes way out in the Amazon. So it's possible that, like, in Brazil, they do have that kind of a, a rule in place. I've previously gone on record in this podcast as saying that the Prime Directive is total bullshit. So I'm sure that like, <laughs> um, real-world legislation is probably far more subtle um, in how it deals with these things. Like, you know, oh no, the natives are going to nuke each other. We better not do anything. Yeah. Cle- clearly not going to help anyone. Yeah. Well, There's a... There's also a lot of stuff that's like, it's illegal, but there's like, you can still do it. And Mm -hmm. it's not like they're going to imprison you for for the rest of your life. It's like, there's a fine. Yeah. Yeah. Snap on the wrist. (laughs) And then, so there's like a, not enough of a disincentive to do what you're doing. If there's some, you know, there's something in it for you. Mm -hmm. I think the, uh, what are those, the Sent- Sent- Sentinelese? Uh, that island off of India with like the... The uh, 
no, I think it's the Sentinel okay. Islands. But they're like an uncontacted people, but they're also like incredibly violent. Ooh. So like okay. there are rules against trying to go there because they will kill you. Okay. Rules for your own good. Has anyone seen that Eli Roth movie? The Green Inferno. Uh, no. I guess not. That's that one's fun. That's about a group of social justice warriors who are very politically correct and Eli Roth thinks these people are horrible and should be eaten. So he puts them on a plane and makes the plane crash as they're going to save the rainforest and then the tribe that they were going to save finds them and it turns out the tribe is horrible cannibals and they eat the people. Hmm. That's pretty good. Right, yeah. Um, uh, any, anyway, great takes. Um, uh, in Plotland, we're learning that uh, Ramsey's wife that he took is a woman from the elected council. So that's a bit of internal political strife there. And uh, Crusher figures out the, the mystery of the disease. It's an airborne particle that smells like some nice Klingon perfume, so people sniff it deeply. Never explained where it comes from. Like, it seems to originate no. in the holodeck, but how did it get there? It's a big old plot hole. <laughs> like, the, the original script had them going to an actual physical place on a field trip. Uh, where they supposedly pick it up, and then by the time they do their little ski trip on the holodeck, it sort of started to take hold, and they start getting these sort of cold-like symptoms, mm -hmm. and then they pass it on. But in the final script, it's not... I think they made it a holodeck trip. It wasn't a trip to a, an actual physical place outside of the ship. Mm -hmm. And so where the hell did this illness come from yeah you know, like, it's a hologram is it possible there's a hologram hologram, hologram disease um, hologram disease in a recent episode um wesley says that colds are a disease that people used to get yeah they don't get <laughs> but i guess no one in this one says oh you just have a cold so that's yeah no. plot hole averted it, was, it does sort of take away the the wonder of that statement, like, wow, you cured the cold. There's like <laughs> other similar stuff you could still get, but not not the cold. It's like in in this year, twenty first century, if she if you said, Oh, he has ye old grippy. Mm hmm Just Wesley decided to use an old disease word. Um like uh, dropsy. Right, dropsy. <laughs> Consumption. Oh dear. The consumptions. Yeah. Oh, that's a shame. Um, uh, so the the boys have all been um, arrested on the planet, and the Enterprise agrees to take them all away, which seems like another Prime Directive violation to me, maybe because like there's some there's some locals among their group, but anyway, they don't want to go. Um, and so they are to be executed. And they go to the execution room, and we learn that they have a laser thing that vaporizes you, and they make Trent push the button. Which is mm -hmm. bullshit. He, he just has to That's get the bullshit. raw end of every deal on this planet. Oh, mm -hmm. he's so screwed. But I'm sure that in his opinion, 
he's probably got it great. He probably does because cause he gets to live in the air conditioned palace instead of out right. with the plebs. Well, he's he's Beata's like right hand man, and I'm sure he'd probably like to be in her right hand, but that's not gonna ever happen because she doesn't think of him that way. Well, you know, he, um, he's, he's like the, the the equivalent of a sexy secretary, kind of. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. That, you know, if they if they stopped and they said, "Hey, equality for dudes," Trent would be one of the first to stand up and go, "No, that goes against the natural order," yeah, no, because thanks. he's got a position of power. Mm-hmm. You know, if they were to get equality, everybody together, he would sort of lose part of his status, mm-hmm. and that's. I'm sure he probably figures that he earned the place where he is. Yeah, and so, he can lord it over other dudes. Yeah. Take-home message here, kids, is that Trent is a really bad man. <laughs> yeah. No redeeming qualities. Um, and well, and he's only he's one of the very few native males that we see. Right, yeah. There's a, there's a few of them. A lot there, of them. He's the only one with any lines. Yeah, they, you know, you, you see every, one every now and again, you know, like in the background watering some flowers or just kind of walking through the halls or something. Man, but man he's the only it. one with one. Yeah, right? Mm. You, you kind of wonder mm-hmm. if that's kind of a thing because, you know, he always hesitates before he speaks. And then he seems kind of afraid when delivering news, which makes you wonder if he was told, you know, like, nobody's talking to you, Trent. Keep your mouth shut. Mm. Um, this is this is another uh, like a recurring um, motif, I think, in TNG, probably in other Star Trek as well. It's like the countdown to execution um, mm-hmm. stock plot, which they did with Wesley on the Sex Planet, and presumably they've they've done it all over the place. Um, uh, I'm just going to mute my computer so it doesn't beep. You guys didn't hear that, though, so it's all good. <laughs> um, no, no particular twist on it this time. She just, like, about to execute them, and then she changes her mind because the, the one that's the wife says no. Um, which seems like... Uh, that would she'd be risking her status by doing that because she'd be seen as weak. Beata would be seen as weak for calling off the execution at the last second. I I thought that Riker's speech to her was pretty good. Oh, there's always a speech though, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you gotta have that because it's Star Trek. It's you gotta like, have it. Like, don't interfere with other cultures, but absolutely, if they're about to execute someone, then give them a little screed about why they suck. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I did, I did kind of like the way that his speech came off, you know, yeah. revolution versus evolution. Yeah. You know, your, your civil rights are going to win out eventually, because it's not the natural order of things for one person to oppress another. It's the natural order of things for everybody to work together equally. And this shit's going to happen eventually. Mm. Which is why I find Beata's... It's, it's a, it's a, to be it's a bum cop note, out. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's cop-out. It's not a, it's not a uplifting, 
end to this story. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. what, what she does, folks at home, is uh, she agrees not to execute them, but instead she exiles all the uh, heretics to a distant, um, you know, godforsaken barren land, presumably the Angel One equivalent of Australia. Mm-hmm. I thought that um, too. <laughs> and uh, says that, oh, she might not be able to stop social progress, but at least she can slow it to a minute crawl, which that's just horrible. Mm-hmm. I think um, you made the uh, separate but equal comparison on your blog, Sarah. And it's, yeah. It's that, if not worse, really. It's, you know, oh, you know, people might be clamoring for their rights, but um, hopefully we can just slow that down in the meantime by, you know, oppressing them as hard as we can. And you know that's not going to fucking work. It's not going to work. In in a couple of generations, they're going to have the same problem because people who are fed up with the way that things are run on Age of One mm-hmm. are going to go out to that settlement way out in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. and they're going to join these people. Eventually the group is going to get bigger and they're going to come back to the main settlements of Angel One and you're probably going to have a, some kind of a civil war. And mm-hmm. they ought to have the opportunity to sort of slowly integrate this into their right. culture. Yeah. And instead she's like, nah, I really like my power, so I'm going to procrastinate. And move the because problem further away from says, yeah, nothing says great leadership like foisting something off on your grandchildren. Good <laughs> job, Anna. Um, I, I, you know, I actually think that's almost an optimistic way of looking at it because, it, like, you're assuming that like progress is inevitable, but in fact, like things can go backwards, and if you take big backward steps like this, you could well be you know, entrenching something that is antithetical to progress. And we've seen in 2017 that progress isn't inevitable. You can have mm-hmm. big, disastrous things happen that don't seem like they should be happening. Oh, God. Yeah, it's kind of... Isn't this sort of like how most, like, civil rights sorts of movements end up sort of ending? It's like okay, we've had the fight and then there are some people that agree with you, but we find this sort of middle ground that doesn't really solve the problem, but then the the problem's sort of anecdotally solved for people that aren't affected by it. Right, like like separate but equal. Yeah. So then it's like, oh, well, we have that win. We're not quite ready for that yet, but that'll be tomorrow's fight Mm -hmm. for our kids. It's an ongoing thing, though. I mean, you take two steps forward, one step back. So you're mm-hmm. a little bit ahead of where you were previously, but not by much. And and through that two steps forward, one step back, you slowly, slowly get to your goal. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like all of the civil rights movements that have been started have either succeeded or they're on their way to succeeding. Mm-hmm. You know, 
you you slowly, slowly, slowly getting equal white equal rights with women. You know, equal you whites. you get. <laughs> oh gosh. That's if only everybody could be equal right with the whites. Uh huh. Right. But you know, like like you you get votes for women, but women are still oppressed. Yeah. You you get um, you know women in the workplace, but there's a pay gap, and yeah. so it, we're we're slowly catching up to that, and it's it's changing things in other ways. It yeah. it benefits men as well as women mm-hmm. to eventually get there, but we're still struggling against that tide. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I feel like I feel like Angel One will eventually get there, but it may take hundreds of years. Ugh. But it's it's sort of like a you know, isn't this like an unnecessary pattern we're sort of needlessly repeating over and over again like just because we think like oh history repeats itself so let's let's yeah. hear it is repeating itself again all right yeah. we got this we made this step all right all right but then like all of the so-called progressives are complicit in sort of halting progress it's like okay well, we got this milestone here okay guys so right. calm down let's go yeah. back to backwards a little bit because that's what happened before. Um, I'm going to go back to, you know, my, my comfortable life over here mm-hmm. where I'm sort of feeling good about how I help other people over here. Uh, but I, you know, it's always the people that don't actually have any stakes in it that are like making these, these like, Oh, okay. We're done with this. Let's, yeah. <laughs> let's move on. Um, your really team is only as fast as your slowest runner. Did you mm-hmm. guys um, hear about the thing with the Texas photo ID laws? Maybe. Um, so Texas obviously has a, a history of disenfranchisement of minority voters. And uh, it, there was a court ruling recently um, that, that might put them on the way to um, uh, wiping out those sorts of laws. So Texas will be forced to to um, not have restrictive voter ID laws and not have any sorts of policies that are, are deemed to, you know, disenfranchise minorities. So that's just a, a recent example, I thought, of, of something where we seem to be making progress in the present. We'll yeah. see. We'll see. I, right. I, I hope that sticks. Because, you know, Depends on how forward, the, the judge rules in the next uh, step. Yeah. Watch this space. Well, anyway, I'm glad that we could um, bring some some optimism out of the uh, somewhat depressing finale to the episode Angel One. And uh, uh, I, I want to thank both of you, Byron and Sarah, for, for joining me on this journey and providing takes on this episode. Scorching takes. <laughs> Sizzling. That's the way we like them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys, and see you next time. Thanks, Bye. James. Bye. Bye.